Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfarm Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor David Kurtzer, who is the Paul Dupuis Jr. University Professor of Social Science and Professor of Anthropology and Italian Studies at Brown University, where he formerly served as provost. He's the author of 12 previous books, including The Pope and Mussolini, which is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara, which was a National Book Award finalist, and as well as a number of other books. And we'll be discussing his newest book, which is titled The Pope at War, The Secret History of Pius the Seventh, uh, the Tenth, what am I? Oh. <laughs> the Twelfth, yeah, I'm like reading my Roman numerals. I'm not going to say XII, Mussolini and Hitler. So thank you, Professor Christopher, for joining me. Uh, happy to be with you. Okay, so uh, tell, start, I'll start off by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. I'm actually a social anthropologist by training, but one always interested in history. And my main interest has been the relationship of politics and religion. And uh, looked at Italy over the 19th and 20th century. And of course, if you're interested in, in politics and religion in Italy, you're interested in the Vatican uh, and its relationship to the Italian state. So I've looked at a series of issues that Mortaro book you mentioned was about back in the days of the papal states. And mid-19th century, when this Jewish boy was taken on orders of the Inquisition, on the grounds he'd been secretly baptized by the Christian servant girl. Uh, but more recently, I've been looking at the 20th century, and uh, you mentioned the other book, The Pope and Mussolini, uh, which looked at the Pope who um, was Pope in the 20s and 30s. So he was Pope when Mussolini came to power. And uh, that book tells about the relationship of the Vatican to the Italian fascist regime. So this new book is kind of a follow-up to that one. It looks at his successor, Pius XII, who became Pope uh, just when the World War II was about to break out. So just generally speaking, though, as a follow-up, so how did you, like I said, all your, most of your books relate to Italy. I mean, how did you, how did this something that you became interested in? Well, there are you know, probably many determinants, of course, the having worked on uh, Jewish related topics in Italian history after I got involved 25 years ago, I think I published the book on the Edgardo Mortara story, which had to do with the relation of the Jews in Italy to the papal states, to the popes. Um, uh, when really in the 1998, I guess it was, the Vatican came out with its statement about the Holocaust, which uh, the Pope at the time, John Paul II, wrote kind of the preface to. Uh, the statement was called, We Remember, but it really should have been called, I think, We Do Not Remember, uh, because it denied any relationship between the kind of demonization of the Jews that could have led to the Holocaust and the demonization of the Jews that the Christian churches had been involved with for centuries. And so that really, um, since I was familiar with Vatican archives already from this other research and knew something about this, it, it uh, somewhat grated on me. So I initially wrote a book actually called The uh, Popes Against the Jews, which was about the role of the Vatican in the rise of modern anti-Semitism, which we usually date to the 1880s. Um, and so it was, it was following that that when they subsequently opened the archives to the 20s and 30s, this was 2006, I then began that work on the relationship of the Vatican and the fascist regime. Uh, and this is when Vatican City became established as a sovereign entity. Uh, and uh, this you know, led into the racial laws in Italy, which took place, began under that papacy in 1938, when Mussolini introduced these draconian anti-Semitic um, regulations. And uh, so, you know, it's kind of been a certain kind of evolution there. 
Okay, so this book, I'll, I'll just say it right at the beginning. I mean, I, I read the whole thing. I really enjoyed it. It, it enjoyed, you know, as a funny word, you know, like in quotes. Um, but it basically goes through from the beginning of the war, before the war, through World War II, and it gives you like a history of World War II, of, of course, and about Pius XII. So, but before we start really discussing, I think we should just give a brief background sketch on the two, you know, I guess we'll call the main characters throughout the book. Um, we'll, we'll start, let's start with Pius because that's, uh, you know, kind of about him. So uh, you maybe first actually want to mention Pius XI, his predecessor, and then discuss a little bit. Then we should discuss, you know, brief, just a brief sketch of Pius XII. Well, in fact, Pius XII, his name before he became Pope is Eugenio Pacelli. And as Cardinal in the 1930s, he was actually the number two to his predecessor. So his predecessor was Pius XI. Uh, and he, in 1930, appointed Pacelli as his Cardinal Secretary of State, which essentially is his second in command. Uh, so the two were quite close in, in that respect, uh, but they were very different personalities. Uh, Pius XI was someone who uh, could lose his temper, would bang his fist on the table if he got angry at a you know ambassador from a foreign country whose country was doing things he didn't like. Uh, and he became uh, especially upset with Mussolini, with whom he had basically made a deal giving Vatican support to Italian fascism. Uh, but when Mussolini increasingly became enamored of Hitler and uh, began to move toward an alliance, uh, Pius XI was very upset because he saw Hitler as a pagan and as an enemy of the Catholic Church, and he began to speak out against their alliance. Uh, so that when he died in um, February of 1939, it came as a great relief to Mussolini and to Hitler. And um, they both saw an opportunity, particularly Hitler, to have a, a different relationship with his successor, Pius XII. So Pius XII was a Roman um, and came from a kind of elite Catholic background. His father and grandfather had both been close to the popes of the time. Uh, his father was a Vatican lawyer. And uh, he, of course, was educated in seminary. Uh, he never became a pastoral priest. He didn't have a, a parish or become bishop of a diocese. Uh, instead, he immediately entered as a young priest, the Vatican diplomatic corps, the secretary of state. And he, in 1917, he was born in 1876. Uh, so 1917, he was appointed a nuncio to Germany. And he spent 12 years, and this would be important and informative for him as well in understanding his view as Pope and in the war. From 1917 to 1929, he was a papal nuncio, which basically ambassador to uh, Germany. And then he got called back at the end of 29 to become a cardinal and, and become secretary of state to Pius XI. Yes, you, you mentioned papal nuncio, so for those not familiar. So how many positions are those? How many of those mm -hmm. positions are there? Oh, geez, I don't know the exact number. They're probably something like 30 or so. Uh, in the, the very nuncios were with countries that had diplomatic relations with the, uh, with the Holy See, with the Vatican. And at that time, for example, the U.S. did not have uh, diplomatic relations. And so they had a position called the uh, apostolic delegate. Apostolic refers to the papal and delegate. So uh, there was a diplomat for the Vatican in, in Washington in the war, war years, for example. Uh, but he didn't have the status, the ambassadorial status that a nuncio would have. Yeah, I'm sure we'll discuss him a little later. So about just about Pius XII, interesting, like, like you said, he never was a parish priest or anything. So that's kind of, I mean, this comes up throughout the book, and I'm sure we'll discuss, he kind of was this like, studious, quiet, he was more elite, he wasn't exactly, necessarily, I don't know if that has to play into it, right? He wasn't with the regular people, so to speak, it's not a position that he ever really was in. 
Yes, he. Um, some people regarded him as, as rather cold and, and aloof and distant. Um, he wasn't known, he wouldn't uh, guffaw. <laughs> if he had a sense of humor, it was a very limited one. Um, he kept canaries, which he was very fond of. So during his, I talk about this a little in the book, and the, during his meals, which he would eat alone because the tradition was that a pope could never eat together with anybody else. Uh, so sitting at the table, um, eating by himself, he'd have a canary kind of perched on his shoulder or on his head, or even when he was shaving, it said he kept a, a canary on one hand. Um, but he was, he could be charming. He was uh, certainly very intelligent. He read uh, several languages and could speak relatively fluently. Well, certainly German, he spoke fluently, uh, but could also speak some French and English as well. Okay, and, and you, you do discuss a little bit uh, his election. So I don't know if you want to actually describe how a uh, pope is elected, as well, just for those not familiar. You do, and was he considered the favorite by the conclave? I, like I said, describe a little bit how that worked, but was he considered the favorite going into that? Well, so, yeah, when a pope dies, um, the uh, cardinals are called from throughout the world. Uh, in this case, uh, and for many, uh, many, many decades, centuries, really, the Italians had a majority of cardinals. And of course, there were cardinals from other countries as well. Uh, they would come and enter into a conclave, uh, which a two-thirds vote would be required to elect the successor to the new pope. Um, so in the time after the following the death in February of Pius XI, the, as the cardinals were gathering in Rome, various of the foreign ambassadors to the Holy See were lobbying with, among other things, with their own cardinals, so say the, the German ambassador to the Holy See, lobbying the German cardinals, the French ambassador to the Holy See, uh, lobbying the French cardinals, uh, and the Italian ambassador to the Holy See, lobbying with the Italian cardinals who are majority. Uh, what we know from their reports back to their governments that both the Mussolini's ambassador and Hitler's ambassador were heavily lobbying the cardinals to elect Pacelli to become the next pope. Okay, so so that's something, and we'll we'll discuss his relationship with Hitler. With Hitler, you already mentioned how he differed from his predecessor, but before that, just I mentioned we will discuss another person is Mussolini, Benito Mussolini, and fascism. Uh, for those not familiar, those may be familiar, but for listeners not as familiar with him, uh, just perhaps give a brief, you know, background sketch of him. Well, Mussolini came from a very different background from the Pope. He came from a kind of central central northern. Uh, Italian background of uh, that was actually heavily leftist and anarchic even, uh, came from a quite poor family. And he was initially a left-wing socialist. In fact, he rose quite high in the Socialist Party. He was for a while uh, the director, the head of the Socialist National Newspaper. Uh, and he was one of the leaders of what we regarded as the leftist fac faction of the Socialist Party. Uh, but when he came out in favor of Italy joining World War I, uh, which the Socialist Party majority opposed, uh, he uh, was kicked out of the Socialist Party and out of his position as editor of the Socialist newspaper and uh, was in World War I as, uh, in the army, the Italian army, uh, for a little while. And it was at this time he made the transition and began to found the fascist movement. Uh, this extreme right-wing movement, and uh, they organized initially in 1919, uh, became a party uh, pretty much the following year, 
began to elect members to parliament. And then 1922, uh, he was appointed prime minister after various kind of violent activities in which the um, king felt basically intimidated that there was going to be greater violence unless he appointed Mussolini prime minister. Uh, so he becomes prime minister. Now, as a left-wing socialist, of course, he was anti-clerical and would, uh, in fact, ridicule the church and the popes and the priests and so on. But he made a strategic decision that if he was going to be successful as a politician, uh, he was going to be able to come to power and stay in power. He needed the support of the Catholic Church. And so he basically uh, decided to make a deal where he would swing the, uh, his support, the support of uh, fascists, the fascist government, to the uh, church if the Pope would ensure uh, church support for the fascist regime, for his regime. And this is what happened. And um, one of the outcomes of this was 1929, the so-called Lateran Accords. So this is what established Vatican City as a sovereign entity, which it had not been previously, and which also ended the separation of church and state in, in Italy. Uh, gave a large payment to the Catholic Church and basically established, uh, gave a kind of privileged position to the Catholic clergy and the Catholic Church. Now, also, one other thing is uh, that you mentioned the king, Victor Emmanuel, um, so on which there was a monarchy as well as a prime minister. So how did that form of government in Italy function until after World War II, until the end of the book? Right. So Italy was founded as a kingdom uh, by the, the Savoyard Kingdom. and uh, so it, it was, un, in this sense, it was unlike the German situation. And this would actually have a big impact on subsequent events because there was an authority other than the uh, other than Mussolini in Italy in a way that there wasn't an authority, uh, official authority with powers other than Hitler in, in Germany at this time, at the time of World War II. So um, the king had the power to appoint the prime minister. Uh, the king basically had been in the pocket of Mussolini, but Mussolini had to go uh, throughout the years of his dictatorship twice a week, uh, had in hand sort of to the uh, royal residence because the king had to sign all acts for them to become legal. So the king uh, retained all those powers and eventually uh, after the Allied landing in 1943, it would be the king who would depose Mussolini. Right. Okay. So now, we'll, now that we mentioned Mussolini, who comes up throughout the book and I'm sure throughout the episode, the podcast here, but let's flip back to Pius. So as you mentioned, the Mussolini and Hitler wanted uh, Pius XII, Pacelli, to be elected pope. So right when he was elected pope, right away, what, did, what was his relationship like with Hitler and the Germans? I mean, what happens right away as he's elected? Yes. Well, in the um, last months of Pius XI's life, so now we're talking about late 38, early 39, uh, well, one sign would be that the Vatican newspaper, Elisabetta Romano, it's called, would almost daily be publishing very critical articles about Germany, about the persecution of the Catholic Church in Germany. It had nothing to do with Jews, but it was focused on this, um, what they took to be the persecution, persecution of the church in Germany. Uh, one of the very first things, I mean, practically the first day that Pacelli gets elected pope is he sends an order to the head of the Vatican newspaper saying, all criticism of Germany must cease immediately. Um, and he also sends a, um, Hitler had sent him a kind of official telegram of um, well wishes on being on his election. And he replied with a, a quite um, uh, positive sort of 
uh, letter to Hitler. And so, um, and the other thing he did is the very first uh, foreign diplomat he called in, essentially a day or two after his coronation as Pope, was the German ambassador to the Holy See to say he hoped after all the tensions of previous months that they could find a way to reestablish a harmonious relationship between the Vatican and the Third Reich. Um, and this kind of leads to uh, one of my discoveries that I, you know, is uh, one of the more important things I think, think that come out in my new book. When you know, they just opened the archives for World War II at the Vatican two years ago, and I got to be uh, one of the first people in there and uh, ended up reading thousands of documents there that had never been seen before by scholars. And uh, among the, probably the most shocking finding that I found was it turns out that Hitler, about five weeks after the election of Pius XII, uh, decided to send a secret emissary to begin negotiations with the Pope. And those negotiations lasted over many months uh, afterward. Um, the other thing that's kind of amazing about this discovery that we made in the archive is that the Pope apparently kept a German prelate in an adjoining room in a position to basically record the conversation which was in German uh, between him and, and Hitler's envoy. And so what I discovered in those newly opened archives were the actual more or less transcripts of their conversations. Yeah, those archives and your discoveries in there are, are fascinating and throughout the book, um, those are you know important new things that we didn't know until now. Uh, so as you mentioned these secret meetings, that's with uh, Prince Philip von Hessen. He was married to Mafal, the, uh, the king of, of Italy's daughter. So, I mean, who was von Hessen and what were these meetings? Why did Hitler, you know, decide to have these meetings? Was it Pius who wanted these meetings? And like I said, we didn't know about these before this. Right, we didn't. And um, there was you know, some slight uh, allusions to that there might be something going on, but we didn't know they actually were taking place, uh, much less their substance. Um, well, Philip von Hessen, according to one biographer of Hitler, he is one of the two men Hitler felt closest to. Uh, he was about as high in the aristocracy in Germany as you could get. He was great grandson of Queen uh, Victoria of England. Uh, he was a grandson of the German emperor. He, Hitler, uh, shortly after he came to power in 1933, appointed him to be the governor of the province, the region uh, that his family lived in, in, in uh, Prussia and Germany. Um, he also would happen to advise Hitler on artwork, art acquisitions in Italy. <laughs> uh, but he was also, as you mentioned, married to the, one of the daughters of the King of Italy, Mafalda, who would end up uh, tragically dying herself, uh, as part of the story, uh, in, in a concentration camp. Um, but the question of, you know, what, who began this and why, uh, Hitler initiated it, but they both had an interest in these, um, in these meetings and an interest in keeping them secret. I mean, the, the Pope uh, kept it secret from even his closest uh, advisors, and um, Hitler did not even let his own ambassador to the Holy See know that they were taking place until, until the very end. Um, so Hitler saw an opportunity, as I mentioned, he had been unhappy about the criticism that the previous pope had been lodging at, at Germany for its treatment of the church. Uh, and at that point, uh, the, the population of Germany initially was about one third uh, Catholic. Of course, it was a majority Protestant. 
after they gobble up uh, Austria in, in 1938 and later the Sudetenland and make them part of the Third Reich, it's getting closer to half the population of Germany is Catholic. So from Hitler's point of view, having the Pope be critical of his regime uh, you know, was obviously not a good thing. And so he was eager, he was eager to uh, see it stop. He was happy to see that the Pope had ordered the, the end of criticism in the Vatican newspaper, for example. So he wanted to be sure that would uh, continue. Question from Pius XII's point of view is he was hoping um, to see the government treat, the German government treat the Catholic Church better than it had been. He was concerned, for example, that the uh, Nazi government had been replacing parochial, Catholic parochial schools uh, that were dominant in some of the heavily Catholic areas of Southern Germany, replacing them with government schools. So for example, whereas uh, in Bavaria, a heavily Catholic part of Germany, when Hitler came to power, I think a majority of students were going to Catholic parochial schools, not to state schools. But by uh, the time he became Pope, it was only a tiny percentage of students who were still in those parochial schools because they had been replaced. Uh, convents and monasteries, uh, quite a few of them had been closed down. There were, were so-called morality trials. The government um, was accusing priests of sex abuse. We've heard this more recently. And uh, putting priests on trial for that and for so-called uh, financial offenses. So there was all this um, persecution of the church from the point of view of the Pope that the Pope was hopeful that he had spent 12 years in Germany, knew Germany very well, uh, that he'd be in a position somehow to, um, to stem. Yeah, another thing also that you that comes up throughout the book again and again throughout the course of the war is that the Pope viewed himself as like the peacemaker. He was going to make peace with everybody. Was that part of these talks or that only kind of comes up, comes up later? Well, that would come up subsequently. So the, the talks begin before the war breaks out. I mean, the war is normally dated to September 1st, 1939, with the German invasion of Poland. Uh, so the talks had begun before that, but then they do continue uh, into the war. And uh, so there are kind of different phases of the talks even. Uh, but um, the yes, the Pope had this ambition that he would be uh, a peacemaker, that he could, and this is part of the rationale for not criticizing uh, the Germans or the Nazis, that he said it would uh, interfere with his ability to uh, be the kind of mediator between the, the two sides, eventually the Allies and the Axis. And this was an ambition he harbored delayed. It would kind of uh, later conflict with the Allies because uh, the Allies quickly became clear that only unconditional surrender, uh, they would not allow the Nazi regime to continue, or the Italian fascist regime for that matter, that only their unconditional surrender would bring it into the war. And so the Pope trying to find a way uh, that would essentially leave the Nazi and, and fascist regimes in power uh, was not going to um, get any support from the allies. Yeah, and so as you mentioned, that's part of what his, you know, his inaction, as we'll talk about now the invasion of Poland in a minute. But one other thing uh, kind of also is that I think you mentioned this as well, is that maybe this has to do with his personality that you discussed before, uh, is that he was, was he somewhat intimidated by Mussolini and Hitler? Did that also lead to his inaction and just staying quiet and trying to tell the newspaper not to, you know, you know, controlling the papers and that kind of thing? Yes, well, both Mussolini and Hitler knew how to intimidate the Pope and basically how to play him, you could say. Uh, so, for example, when... Um, 
when Hitler, when the Germans have their westward invasion, so now we're in the spring of 1940, and they invade uh, the Germans, invade France, invade Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, France. The uh, Pope initially writes a telegram to the sovereigns, the kings and so on, of the, uh, the Belgian, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. He doesn't say anything about Nazis or German invasion directly, but he expresses sympathy for their plight. And uh, he has, these are published in the uh, Vatican newspaper, albeit they're published in, in French, not in Italian, in the Italian newspaper. Um, but um, Mussolini and the fascists are enraged by this, didn't expect it out of the Pope. And uh, many of the vendors uh, in Italy of the Vatican newspaper get uh, assaulted or get their papers uh, seized from them and burned. Uh, some of the readers are um, similarly assaulted. And um, the you know, Pope kind of learns his lesson and decides uh, he didn't want a repetition of anything like that. So he'd be uh, even more careful in the future, even though there he named the Nazis, named the Germans, named the aggressor. Uh, but now he would even be more careful on what he said. Yeah, and this is the pullback, as you said, in 1940, the pullback to 39 when they invade Poland. I mean, he, he says nothing. And Poland is a Catholic country, extremely Catholic country. And so, like you mentioned, his reasoning was the Catholics in Germany and in Austria. But I mean, it's kind of a funny reasoning. Is that really like how legitimate is that to you? Or that was just an excuse. I mean, he doesn't say anything, right, when they invade Poland. And as you mentioned, even later on, when they invade uh, Belgium and Netherlands, he hardly says anything either. Yes, well, in fact, uh, when we talk about the silence of the Pope during uh, the Holocaust or during World War II, uh, of course, we identify with, with the Jews and is not speaking out against the uh, attempt to exterminate the Jews of Europe. But in fact, the, uh, the controversy over the silence of the Pope began really the day after the war began in Poland and didn't initially have anything to do with Jews, it had to do with uh, Polish Catholics. Not only because Poland, as you said, is overwhelmingly, albeit about 10% of the Polish population, so over 3 million uh, were Jews, but still the great majority were Roman Catholic. Uh, but not only that, not only was a primarily Roman Catholic country being invaded, but the uh, Germans saw the Catholic clergy, especially in Western uh, Poland, which was an area they were planning to annex to the Third Reich, they saw them as kind of local fonts of resistance to uh, well, of Polish nationalism, and therefore resistance being taken over by, by the Germans. And so they arrested hundreds of them and sent them to concentration camps where quite a lot died. Uh, so it's in this context that the Catholic clergy in Poland, as well as the, for example, the Polish ambassador to the Holy See, is begging the Pope to denounce what's going on. Uh, and the Pope refuses to do so. So this is even before the questions of the silence of the Holocaust comes up. Yeah, and and you know, with the Holocaust, of course, with the Jews, he says nothing. And and as you talk about throughout the book, he has reports. There are reports coming in from priests. They, the the church knows what's going on. And I, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but you mentioned this earlier in the book, I believe, right? Pius XI was going to say something about the racial laws in Italy against the Jews, and Pius XII says, you know, forget it. He's not going to say anything and antagonize Mussolini or Hitler. And he just for the Jews, forget about it. He's not going to do anything. Yes. Yeah, so he um, throughout. The war years, the Pope will, you know, the, the word Jew will never uh, issue from his lips. And um, the, his defenders uh, 
And there's, you know, a fairly large segment in the Catholic Church, particularly the right wing of the Catholic Church, that sees him as a great heroic figure and are trying to make him a saint. Um, so they will point, for example, to a, a Christmas speech he gave in 1942, where like on page 18, buried, there's a couple of lines about it's really not good to uh, harm people based on their race and so forth. It just, again, doesn't mention Jews particularly. Um, saying, therefore, he spoke out. But you know, from my point of view, one of the things people don't seem to grasp and when I think of the responsibility of the Pope is who was it who was murdering all these Jews? Who killed the six million? There, there weren't people who thought they were pagans. There were people who thought they were Christians. And of those, a good proportion, and whether it's half or not, I don't know, but certainly a huge proportion, uh, were people who thought they were good Roman Catholics, and when they went back home, would go to you know their regular church mass and so on. So the Pope's failure to and not just that, but how did they justify killing a two-year-old Jewish child? Uh, I've got to think that you know what they heard about the evil of Jews, you know, growing up from their parish priests had to have played a role. Um, and uh, yeah, so when we think about what responsibility the Pope might have had to speak out about this. Um, you know, that's really on my mind. Yeah. And as you discussed throughout the book, as I just mentioned there, he was kind of this, like, I don't know what the word is, a dense writer, you know, he kind of got carried away and, you know, on page 18 of his speech, probably who knows how long it took him to get there. And he says some lines, he doesn't mention Jews, you know, and, and his defense about not having the Catholics. I mean, he could have said something, like I said, he was the Pope. He decided to say nothing um, throughout the war, you know, so uh, generally his attitude throughout the war was was this, right? His lack of action is, you know, his inaction, say nothing. Um, actually, you know, he he met, I, I'm looking at the book, you discuss uh, Ribbentrop, the uh, German foreign minister actually came to meet with him. He was meeting with German officials. He was constantly, like I mentioned, von Hessen. So he was in contact with the Germans throughout. Yes, I mean, he actually... For one thing, he also was uh, regularly meeting or uh, receiving an audience German soldiers who were increasingly occupying Italy, and he took great pleasure in being able to speak with them in their native language, very proud of his mastery of German language. Um, so, you know, so again, it's not that he was happy about this. I mean, he certainly wasn't happy that Jews were being slaughtered or, or that Polish priests were being sent to concentration camps. But... Um, you know, aside from being a very cautious man, he was also worried that if he criticized, well, first of all, he was worried that in the first years of the war that uh, Hitler was going to win the war, which most people thought was going to happen. I mean, if you think of especially what happened in the spring of 1940, you had, you know, the what was supposed to be the impregnable Maginot line that France had erected to prevent a uh, German invasion. And the Germans just walk right through it, essentially, and in a matter of weeks, march through Belgium, the Netherlands, and France. Uh, and they're making similar progress in, in North Africa and then in the Balkans and so on. So, and their initial assault on the Soviet Union. So there's good reason to fear that the Germans were going to win the war. And the Pope uh, and those around him certainly had this idea. And therefore, from his point of view, the question is, um, how do I protect the church in a Europe under uh, Nazi with their pals, the fascist control? And I think this in the uh, first half, certainly of the of the wars, uh, was an important motivator for explaining, understanding the Pope's actions. 
later on when it, the tide of the war changes, which normally we think of as the winter 42-43, uh, with the American entry in the war and the tide turning in the Soviet Union, uh, then the Pope began to have a different fear, uh, and the fear was communism, because um, yeah, who, who were the allies? I mean, the allies, uh, the main allies were the US, Britain, but also the Soviet Union. And he feared a, that a German collapse would lead to the Soviet army, the Red Army, uh, flowing through much of uh, Europe, uh, along with various uh, uprisings of communists, uh, you know, native communists in the Western European countries. So, um, you know, this was what motivated his, among other things, interest in trying to be in a position to negotiate a compromise peace. Um, now, I'm sure we'll talk more about the communism part, but going back to Mussolini and the Pope and his relationship with Mussolini, and as Mussolini decided to have Italy join the war, uh, what was, was the Pope's opinion of that, of, of, the, of uh, Italy going in on uh, Germany's side of the war? And also, oh. uh, we, should, we should mention also uh, Mussolini's uh, son-in-law was uh, involved, very involved in this as well, right? Right. Yeah, like a recent uh, president of the United States. <laughs> We had the leader here having a son-in-law who was his kind of go-to guy. Uh, his name was Galeazzo Chano, and in 1936, he appointed him essentially as his heir apparent as uh, foreign secretary or, or uh, minister of foreign affairs. Um, uh, well, the Pope certainly did not want Italy to go to war uh, and did what he could to uh, work behind the scenes to encourage uh, Mussolini and his government, partly through the son-in-law, uh, to discourage Mussolini from entering the war. But that said, uh, when the when the announcement is made, June 10th, 1940, by Mussolini, that he's, he declares war on France and Great Britain and joining the side of uh, his German partner, uh, the Pope remains silent. Not just that, but the Pope is also, as Bishop of Rome, the head of the Italian Episcopate, the Italian Church. Other countries like Poland have a primate, cardinal primate, who's in charge of the, the church, the Episcopate of that country. But in Italy, it's the Pope. And the, uh, the church, the Italian church under the Pope, comes out in favor of the war. Uh, that is, the um, not only the archbishops of uh, and bishops of various dioceses and so on, archdioceses uh, urge their parishioners to take part in the war. Uh, but for example, Catholic Action National Groups, these are the, are the main organization of the Catholic laity in Italy, uh, their directors all say it's the duty of all good Catholics to uh, do their part uh, uh, fighting on the Axis cause in the war, the, the Italian. Um, cause of the war. And the Pope, so the Pope tries to um, himself personally uh, maintain this position of neutrality, but of course, um, he's uh, in a way playing a double game here. Yeah, well, well, at this time, what's the Pope's relationship, so to speak, with England and the U.S. You mentioned, I think, the ambassador from the I think U.S. was Myron Taylor. Right? I think the other one is Darcy Osborne. If I'm saying his name right, I mean, what was what was his relationship like with them? As he's trying to, like I said, he's I guess trying to play this dangerous game, peacemaker. He's somewhat in the middle. He's talking to everybody. Well, the Pope has a very different uh, opinion of Britain and the U.S. Uh, first of all, that neither country had diplomatic relations, so they had envoys, but they weren't technically ambassadors. 
Um, but uh, first of all, from the church's point of view at the time, Britain was this um, somewhat hostile Protestant uh, country prejudiced against Catholics. I mean, probably this has to do with the Irish situation. Um, whereas the US, uh, well, for one thing, beginning early in the 20th century, the Vatican came to depend primarily on American Catholic funding for the Vatican. So you know, one reason, even if the Pope had wanted to somehow come out in favor of uh, Hitler and Mussolini, which he didn't in the war, uh, that would have prevented him was it would have <laughs> dried up all the, the funding for the Vatican. Um, but uh, so the Pope treasured his relationship as he saw it with the uh, American president, Roosevelt, a relationship he didn't have with Churchill. When he was Secretary of State in 1936, he had spent a couple months visiting the United States and had actually met with uh, FDR, with Roosevelt. Uh, and Roosevelt ended up sending what, because they didn't have diplomatic relations, his, what he uh, termed his personal envoy, man, you mentioned Myron Taylor to represent him, go back and forth occasionally to, uh, to Rome from New York. Uh, so yeah, so this, this was uh, the situation that uh, the Pope, did um, treasure his relationship with Roosevelt in particular, but also eager to maintain strong relations with the with U.S. because of the Catholic Church there. Okay, so obviously you jump ahead a little bit, but the book, uh, I don't know if I mentioned, it's like, uh, as you look, it's about over 600 pages. So it's a large book, and you go through, like I said in the beginning, the history of the war, and there's a lot of other characters. We didn't even mention Mussolini's uh, lover, Clara Petacci, right, where you met, you have a lot of, heard notes and letters that you went through. There's a, there's a lot more uh, that I'm just skipping around, but you know, when the allies now attack um, Italy, they bomb, I think Genoa first, and they end up you know, coming in. Uh, and then after that, when they uh, invade when they, in Italy, I mean, what, what's the Pope's reaction to that? And uh, what happened well, then? So the, so the, um, the ally, well, first of all, when the allies start bombing Italy, the Pope is concerned that they don't bomb Rome. Uh, the bombing begins quite early in the war, uh, first by the British, then uh, later, only later when the Americans join, the Americans uh, become part of the bombing in Italy as well. So in the archives that have recently been opened for World War II at the Vatican, there are hundreds and hundreds of documents that have to do with the Pope's attempts to uh, get the Allies to agree not to bomb Rome. Uh, but the Allies' position is, well, wait a second, Rome is the capital of one of the major uh, Axis powers and its command center. How can you ask us not to bomb it? Uh, aside from the fact you never protested when the uh, Germans and, and fascists uh, bombed London, for example. Uh, but from the beginning, the Allies said, well, of course, we would never bomb uh, Vatican City and we would try to do everything possible to avoid bombing the, anything else having to do with the church in, in Rome. But uh, Roosevelt especially, because he was worried about Catholic support <laughs> for him in uh, various elections, 1940-1944. And so he was, in fact, rather reluctant about bombing Rome. Of course, they weren't going to bomb Vatican City. There'd be no reason to. Um, but in um, so the first time Rome is, is bombed is fairly well into the war. It'll be in the uh, middle of July, 1943. And at this point, the Allies are, um, have 
uh, landed in Sicily and the Germans are sending troops through Rome um, to get them uh, north to south. A lot of them are coming by train as are their munitions. And Rome is a major um, point for those trains to pass through. And so the Allies bomb uh, in, in July, mid-July 43, bomb the, uh, those parts of Rome that are associated with military targets. Actually, before we uh, continue with July 43, I want to jump back to something that you mentioned in here in, in mid-March 1943 in uh, chapter 27. It's very interesting of uh, Angelo Roncalli, if I'm not butchering his name, who later become John the 23rd, right? And and he actually... Uh, Roncalli. Yeah, and he, he at that point was trying to um, let get Jews out of Slovakia, right? And get them to Western Palestine, to Israel. And just what was that about? And then, you know... The, uh, the Vatican, you know, kind of responded nothing to that. Right. So, I mean, the Jews in Europe, um, really from the beginning of various racial laws in the 30s, even before World War II, are um, desperate to get out and trying to, you know, find other countries that will take them. And uh, virtually everybody's closing their door uh, to Jews. And, um, for example, um, a lot had hoped to go to South America, including the U.S., of course, made it very difficult for Jewish refugees to come in. Um, so Palestine, uh, so both for you know, the obvious kind of Zionist reasons, but just also it's a place that would take Jews in uh, where they couldn't go elsewhere, became uh, an important potential destination for those escaping the Holocaust. Uh, but insofar as they wanted to get Vatican or church assistance in their efforts, they ran into the problem that the position of the Vatican had been opposed to having more Jews in Palestine because they were worried about the creation of a Jewish state, which they opposed and basically would have opposed for a long time thereafter, uh, would only recognize Israel quite late. Um, so when people like Roncalli, Roncalli was uh, the papal envoy in uh, Istanbul, but also representing to some extent the um, uh, being a kind of uh, touchstone for the uh, central parts of uh, Europe as well. Uh, he became involved in efforts to try to facilitate a migration of German refugees, uh, well, Jewish refugees to uh, Palestine. And so would write, so we see this correspondence now that he had, he and others, other uh, nuncios, um, for example, in Romania and so on, to the Vatican uh, asking for assistance in getting the governments to allow Jews to pass through their countries to get to Palestine. And we know now from these recently opened archives, the kind of the discussions, internal discussions are going on that basically were around this problem that, well, you know, we don't like to see these people um, who are going to be you know, dying otherwise. Uh, plus, it's not going to look good if we get in the way. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't want to be encouraging Jews to be going to Palestine. So let's try to find some way, you know, around this. Right. You know, just another sad part of the church's, you know, inaction uh, over here. So um, back to Italy. So the war is kind of going poorly. The Italian army was a, a bit of a joke. Uh, and so, uh, you know, at that point, um, you know, you mentioned it earlier with the king and Mussolini and Mussolini gets uh, overthrown and arrested. And then subsequently, uh, after that, the Germans end up coming in and, you know, the allies are coming up and the Germans are coming from the south and it ends up being kind of uh uh, just two competing governments. Maybe we just give a bit of that background, and then we can discuss, you know, really what happens to the Jews of Italy. Unfortunately, 
Well, so the Allies uh, landed initially in Sicily in uh, July, uh, for early part of July of 43, and moved quite quickly through, um, through Sicily. The main opposition are not the larger number of Italian forces that don't seem that eager to fight them, uh, but the German uh, soldiers were in Sicily. Uh, but uh, so it's, and it's clear that the Allies are now, the tide of the war is, has changed. The Allies have taken North Africa from the uh, Axis powers, for example, in the previous months. So um, it's in this context that the uh, king and the Italian military basically turns on Mussolini. And the king deposes uh, Mussolini on July 25th. So um, shortly after the Allied landing. And, uh, but now the new government that's formed, new Italian government is in a difficult situation because basically they want to get out of the war, but uh, they have basically hundreds of thousands of their own soldiers fighting alongside the Germans in different parts of Europe, in the Soviet Union, in uh, the Balkans. Uh, and, um, you know, they're worried about, plus there are a lot of German soldiers in Italy itself. So they're kind of uh, practicing various delaying uh, uh, tactics, but the allies are insistent that they've got to announce their unconditional surrender, which basically they do on September 8th. Uh, so about 45 days after the overthrow of Mussolini. And essentially the next day, the Germans flood their uh, troops south through the peninsula, take over uh, the greater part of the Italian peninsula, except for the extreme south. Uh, and that includes Rome. So for nine months, the next nine months from September till the Allies will liberate Rome in early June of the following year, 44, uh, the Germans control Rome. And this is another aspect to understand the Pope's behavior and why he's not striking out against the Germans, uh, that he wants to maintain amicable relations with the German military command in Rome to protect Vatican City. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's a big part of it. But uh, the Germans then begin to round up Rome's Jews, Italy Jews, and shift them off to concentration camps. Unfortunately, they literally, you know, annihilated uh, Rome's Jewish population. And the Vatican stays silent, more or less. I talk about that, although the Pope does seem to care a little bit about those that were baptized or mixed marriages or the kids were. Uh, you know, whatever the case may be, those kind of things, there they do try to speak up a little bit. But for regular Jews, they don't seem to care, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, this, um, when you look at the archives, uh, well, period actually beginning before the war with the, the racial laws, the so-called racial laws, the anti-Semitic laws in Italy, uh, beginning in the, the fall of uh, 1938. Um, yeah, those laws, which were really draconian, uh, they kicked all Jewish children out of schools, all Jewish teachers, professors are fired, all Jewish civil servants are fired, Jews are fired from the uh, professions, and they're from um, banks and insurance companies and so on. So the Jews are starving, they, they can't work, um, and they're being vilified as enemies of good, healthy Christian Italian society. And the... Uh, and they justify these laws by saying they're just doing what the popes had long done when the popes for centuries had ruled Rome, uh, which they had up till 1870. In fact, so it wasn't all that uh, long, uh, much longer before where Jews had been isolated, had been um, kept separate from Christians and so on. 
So um, in the, at this time, so even beginning before the war, what uh, the appeals that the Vatican heeded were those from uh, converted Jews, baptized Jews, uh, because from, of course, from a church point of view, a Jew who is baptized should be treated not as a Jew, but as a Catholic. But from the fascist point of view, they had various kinds of uh, ideas about what constituted a Jew. And in many cases, these baptized Jews were considered were treated as if they were Jews. So now with the German occupation, one thing that I found uh, striking is, uh, you alluded to this, that uh, October 16, 1943, there's a famous roundup, uh, 350 SS are sent to Rome uh, with lists of the Jews of Rome. And they go door to door to the Jewish homes and try to uh, capture all the Jews of Rome. They don't succeed because many go into hiding and so on. But they initially that day, uh, October 16, 1943, seize 1,260 Jews. Uh, they keep them in a holding area, a military college that's actually just outside Vatican City. So literally a stone's throw from the Vatican. And they keep them there for two days, during which they kind of go over their papers. What papers they go over? Uh, well, it's largely to see whether they've been baptized. Because although the Germans, of course, famously are supposed to not care about religion, but think of race, you know, Jews race, it doesn't matter if you convert. It wasn't true, at least in Italy, because in Italy... Uh, it was the, the Germans, uh, the Nazis wanted to maintain good relations with the Vatican. And so, in fact, 250, about 250 of those people who'd been seized were let go. So that two days later, when the Jews were put on the train, which went directly to Auschwitz, where most of them were murdered the first day they arrived, um, sent directly to the gas chambers, they, um, they did... 250 people who had been able to show that basically their baptismal credentials were, were let go. Uh, so today, when you hear people use the figures about all the Jews who were saved by the Vatican, it turns out, if you ask who you're talking about, um, a lot of these cases, in fact, are of this sort. Yeah, and and... and like you said, the, the, the church knew this. They were trying to save what, you know, in their eyes were Catholics, not Jews. I mean, that, that's why they were doing this. So the Jews, they weren't saving. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and as you mentioned there also, the reason why the Germans, no other countries, the Germans allowed this, it's only here they were trying to maintain good relationship with the Vatican, with the Pope. So they obviously, the Pope had power, but he chose not to use it for the other Jew, for, for the Jews. Um, otherwise, um, now, there was this kind of like fake news that you turn about going around that Hitler is going to kidnap the Pope. And that's kind of why they, you know, defend him and say, oh, well, he couldn't do anything. He was going to, he was going to, you know, he's going to be kidnapped. Well, yeah, I mean, the Pope actually was nervous about this. As I say, uh, Hitler and Mussolini knew how to intimidate the Pope and keep, you know, by his silence. And um, yeah, so he, he was hearing rumors that uh, there were those in the Nazi, if not Hitler himself, uh, Nazi command who would like to see the Pope uh, taken to Germany and so forth. Um, of course, if Hitler wanted to kidnap the Pope, he could have done it very easily. Uh, so uh, uh, one reads now strange things, including Italian press, about how uh, the the uh, Pope's uh, gendarmes somehow prevented the, <laughs> the Germans from kidnapping the Pope. But of course, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and the other thing to keep in mind is that the, the Germans were trying to portray themselves as the protectors of Christian Europe against the anti-Christian forces. And of course, primarily there, there were two. 
the communists and the Jews from their point of, from the Nazis' point of view. Uh, so it was not in the interest of the Germans to be seen to you know, be kidnapping the Pope or be occupying Vatican City or taking action against the uh, church in Rome. Uh, so it was uh, convenient for both sides to uh, have these kind of more amicable relations during the German occupation of Rome. Yeah, I think at one point you mentioned in the book, right, the Swiss Guard, was they said that they were ill-equipped and they needed better arms or grenades or machine guns. The Pope actually didn't allow them. They, they were kind of the ceremonial force. They weren't going to stop any army. Right. But actually, you know, uh, this is something also I found in these uh, recently open archives, the request from the head of the, uh, the Vatican kind of military uh, that uh, they get better arms. But the reason to get better arms, it begins this, uh, and by the way, ahead of he seems also have been a uh, fascist informant, but uh, that's kind of another question. But he's, um, he begins by saying, you know, if we're actually it's an army, namely let's say the Germans who are attacking Vatican City, it doesn't matter what arms we have, you know, forget it. It's, but what we're worried about is what happens if uh, the Germans abandon Rome and there's an uprising, a communist uprising. They were fearful of this because the communists were seen as the main opponents of, of fascists and, and the Nazis in Rome. Uh, and what if the communists then you know, come to take over the Vatican? That's who, who we want to be able to defend against. Yeah. So, so at this time, the, the Allies are, you know, you discussed this at length in the book, that the Allies are pushing north towards Rome and they're constantly bombing the city. And, and Pius is obviously keeps you know, asking them not to bomb it, but the Germans were there, the, the Italians were there in the city, um, they're trying not to bomb Vatican City. The Pope goes to the bombing sites, and I want to discuss that a little bit before, you know, up until the Allies, you know, actually end up in Rome. Right. So um, the Pope pays, um, there are two, in the summer of 43, the two initial bombings of Rome, which do um, uh, lead to quite a few uh, deaths of, of civilians. Uh, they're both aimed at these military targets. Um, at the the railroad yards and also the uh, airfields that are used by the uh, German military, but um, the the Pope goes, uh, for example, that first the afternoon of the first day of the bombing in July, and then again the second bombing in August. He goes to the area uh, some hours after the Allied planes leave, and to kind of look at the devastation. In one case, a major basilica has been heavily damaged, and he, he goes there to look. Uh, there are hundreds or thousands of people in the streets who are sort of desperate, uh, see the Pope as you know, their one source of, of comfort there. Um, and this is the thing in Italy. They're kind of only, other than Mussolini, there's only one kind of authority, uh, and that's the church, and, and it's represented, of course, by the Pope. Uh, so they're kind of stirring scenes there of the Pope uh, blessing the people who are going down on their knees amidst the, the rubble and ruin, and then he would get back in his car and return to, uh, to the Vatican. Yeah, there, there was actually another uh, where he discussed the, uh, the, the partisan killing some of the Germans, and then there was the reprisals. The Germans uh, took Carlos out of the city and just murdered them and dumped them into you know caves that the Pope knew about this, found out about this only afterwards. Yeah, well, that's, and now we're in the spring of 44, still during the German occupation. Uh, the partisans, there was, of course, a part of the time partisan movement, and they planted a bomb 
in such a manner in Rome that they, when a phalanx of uh, German troops were marching by, uh, they exploded it and it killed uh, 35 of them. Hitler was irate and he vowed that uh, 10 Italian civilians should be murdered for every uh, dead German soldier and that it should be done within 24 hours. So the uh, German uh, officials in uh, Rome are kind of rushing to figure out how to get uh, 360 people to to murder uh, within 24 hours. And uh, they uh, basically take people who are in the jails already. A lot of them are kind of partisans in there for sort of political reasons. But then there's also a large number in there because they were Jews who've been rounded up just because they were Jews. So whereas the others tended to be sort of adult men, uh, the Jews were were whole families. And um, so both the oldest and the youngest of the victims would be like 80 year old and 14 year old uh, would be Jews, Roman Jews. Um, I forget something like 75. So 300, I think there's 365 uh, people are murdered, uh, something like 65, 75 were Roman Jews. Um, The next day, the Vatican newspaper has an article uh, saying nothing about the murder of the 365, but uh, castigating essentially the partisans for murdering the German troops, saying uh, that you know, we call uh, on everybody to respect the you know, law and order and uh, not to do anything that could just provoke further violence. And this is at the same time, of course, as the Allies are dropping leaflets on Rome, calling on the people to rise up against the German occupiers. And now, now the book, uh, you know, not to, I don't want to downplay this like in the episode, just, you know, obviously people, if anyone interested to read the book and I'll put a link in the shows notes to purchase the book, but the, uh, there's a lot of talk of, you know, when we haven't talked to Mussolini for a while, it was discussed Mussolini and Clara and, and Chiano and what happens to them um, at this point, Mussolini eventually is freed. He's in, he's in the North and Chiano is, is murdered, is, you know, killed. We should talk about and what happens with Mussolini and Clara, you know, what ends up happening with all of them? Well, okay, the um, bit of a long story, but just to telescope it. Um, so Mussolini is overthrown July 25th. Actually, there had been a meeting the previous night of the Grand Council of Fascism, which Chano, his son-in-law, was part of, and which they, uh, essentially majority, voted no confidence in his military leadership. This helped give the, the king the next day the excuse to, um, to depose Mussolini, replace him. Um, the Mussolini is initially uh, arrested. He's uh, placed in a couple of islands, then on a kind of mountain place to keep him away. They're afraid the Germans are going to try to uh, free him, which of course they did. Uh, so shortly after the uh, Germans flood down, following September 8th, uh, 1943, flood through uh, Italy and seize Rome, uh, they get to the place where Mussolini is being held and free him. And then they bring him north and establish him in a new public government known as the Republic of Celo. Um, It's a Republican government because now the king is on the other side, of course. And uh, they will uh, rule over a sort of declining part of Italy, shrinking as the Allies move north, uh, that government technically, Mussolini's government, until uh, the end of the war at the end of April 1945. Um, now, Chano is in a really bad spot uh, because he, with the Allies uh, presumably about to take over Rome, 
Uh, he's been kind of uh, Mussolini's main man for almost all of the war uh, and was wanted as a war criminal as a result. And uh, yet he was seen by the fascists and the Germans as a traitor for having voted against his father-in-law at that meeting of the Grand Council. So he ends up, in fact, getting arrested uh, by the new fascist government and put on trial by Mussolini's new government in the north. And uh, along with some other members who had voted against Mussolini at that meeting of the Grand Council of Fascism was put before a firing squad and executed in uh, January of 1944. Uh, Mussolini uh, would eventually uh, be caught as the Allies were uh, liberating the rest of Northern Italy in, in late April. He tried to flee across the border to get into Germany. Uh, and he was disguised as a German soldier going with a, uh, a, a group of German military as they were fleeing, but they were stopped by a partisan band uh, he, along with his young lover, she was then, I don't know, 34 years old or something, uh, Clara Patacci, uh, were the next day uh, executed. Uh, so that was the end of uh, Mussolini. Yeah, so now uh, flipping back over to Rome and uh, finally the Allies arrive and uh, liberate Rome, um, which, which you have a kind of personal connection to. I don't know if you want to mention to the listeners, kind of you have a personal connection there. Um, and then, you know, so mention that. And then um, what happens with, with the Americans being there, with the Pope suddenly there's a new, new, uh, you know, the Allies are now in charge, not the Germans anymore. So now what happens with the Pope? Yes. Yeah, so um, the Allies finally break through the German forces and liberate Rome in early June, uh, 1944. Uh, my father, so the connection is this, my father was a rabbi and he was a chaplain in the U.S. Army. Uh, he was the Jewish chaplain with the Allied troops at Anzio. Anzio was, I don't know, about 30 miles or so south of Rome on the coast. And uh, the Allies had landed there in January 1944 as part of the effort to uh, liberate Rome. Uh, but they were holed up there under German fire for, for a number of months. Um, and so I grew up kind of hearing stories about his experience, among other things, uh, conducting uh, services in uh, wine cellars uh, and, of course, visiting the Jewish troops in the, um, the hospital, the field hospital, and, and presiding over Jewish uh, uh, funerals at the uh, adjacent cemetery to the, uh, the war fields there. But he was also with, the, uh, with that army which liberated Rome. So uh, I think it was a Sunday that uh, Rome was liberated. He was there. Uh, and a few days later on uh, Erev Shabbat, on, on Friday evening, they opened the, uh, the Grand Temple, the major synagogue in Rome. And my father, together with the chief rabbi of Rome, conducted the first service in a liberated synagogue in, in uh, formerly German-occupied Europe. So I grew up with with various stories about all this, and uh, so it's. Uh, I, mean, I think I end my um, the book <laughs> saying something about uh, returning to to this uh, all these years later to the same scene. Uh, the in terms of the Pope and the uh, the Allied forces, um, you know, the Pope was relieved because there, he had been worried that the Germans would leave and the Allies wouldn't initially get there, and that communists would be some kind of uprising. Uh, but that didn't happen. 
And uh, so the transition to PAP plus the Germans, interestingly, uh, tellingly, did nothing to destroy anything in Rome. I mean, they could have you know, blown up all sorts of stuff, including the Vatican, of course, and churches, uh, but they didn't. They left uh, pretty much everything intact as part of their uh, kind of PR effort to show themselves as the great defenders of Christendom and of the Vatican. Uh, uh, but the Pope, so the Pope was relieved. He was uh, he would meet with the various uh, generals and others clamoring for audiences uh, with Pope. Um, and uh, but the war wasn't over. The uh, for one thing, just in terms of Italy, the Germans would still occupy uh, much of Italy for another year till. Uh, so this is early, early June '44, or when they they the Allies arrived in Rome, but they wouldn't uh, get to Milan, for example, until April of the following year. It's almost a year later. Uh, the interesting thing, the telling thing, I don't know, uh, is that what you have to say on this is that, um, so the allies are in Rome now, the Germans are not there, it's not the fascist government, and he still doesn't say anything, right? He knows what's going on to the Jews in Europe. The Pope at this point doesn't say, does he, doesn't say anything still, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not just the Jews in Europe. I mean, the um, the uh, fascist government in Italy, which is still controlling the northern part of Italy, has a policy of now uh, they've ordered the arrest of all Jews and having them sent to the concentration camps. And Italy had many concentration camps. This, I think, generally isn't well known. And it was from those concentration camps that they were being deported to their death, largely at Auschwitz. Um, so, yeah, this, this was still going on after Rome was liberated. and Unfortunately, it would go on for, for the better part of a year. Yeah, and again, but there's still inaction, silence on the Pope's part. Yes, so the Pope uh, does not uh, speak out against this. Uh, and and the uh, one thing that you should realize is that the, the Jews were rounded up for deportation. We think about the SS on, on October 16th, but it's been estimated that about half of all the Jews, about uh, six or 7,000, would meet their death. Um, in concentration camps and death camps, uh, but that at least half of them were actually rounded up, not by just Germans, but Italians. So often uh, an Italian would go, Italian authorities would go together with the Germans to locate the Jews. And how, how were the Germans, who very few of them spoke Italian even, uh, going to find Jews? It was only through the help of local Italians. Uh, so the Italians were very much implicated. This is something that I think Italians would like to forget as well uh, in the Holocaust in there. Yeah, and, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the, the Pope was very busy with uh, communism throughout. He was very worried about communism. This is a, a theme throughout. And he also wanted to be the peacemaker. And that's, you know, the, 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 the end of the war over here. He, he tried still try to think about brokering some sort of peace. With not a peace, but to allow Germany way out, and as you mentioned this much earlier in our discussion, how you know the Allies said no way, only unconditional surrender. It's not happening. Well, and also um, you know as we get to these latter stages of the war, when um, they ask the uh, the Pope to um, to be involved in Italy's decision to leave the Axis cause, he uh, we know this from the newly available evidence in the Vatican archives. Uh, one of the reasons he gives for not wanting to get involved is he's afraid that uh, following a German defeat, the German Catholics will blame him as having played some role in their defeat. 
And so he doesn't want to do anything that could lead them to uh, take that view. Yeah, and then, so, I mean, this this silence has kind of come up, right? You, I think you already mentioned, but the, you can mention a little more how, you know, the Pope went on to live another, what's he's like, 58, right, or so. And then he, but there was kind of this push to make him into a saint. I think, I think has it been shut down by Francis now at this point? I mean, what what, what ended up happening? There was, a, there was an outcry, of course, to because as we discussed here. Yes, well, um, no, it hasn't been shut down. So there's an effort to make him a saint, which has been going on now for quite a while. Um, in I mean, Pius, you have to realize, and Francis is in this funny position with respect to all this, because from the uh, Francis' main antagonist within the church is the right wing of the church, of course. And for the right wing of the church, <clears throat> Pius XII is a great hero because he's the last pope before the Second Vatican Council which from the conservatives in the church is where the, uh, the church went wrong. Not least, of course, in uh, renouncing their centuries long view of demonizing Jews. So, um, but I think, Fran and so I was kind of disappointed that when my book came out, my book came out in June in the US, but came out uh, just a couple of weeks earlier at the end of May in Italy. And following the Italian publication, both the Vatican daily newspaper and the daily newspaper of the church hierarchy of, uh, of Italy had full page uh, articles denouncing my book and uh, kind of trotting out the usual playbook of apologetics and just not willing to confront this history. So unfortunately, uh, there's still great resistance to confronting this history. Now, should say there are many in the church who who do want to confront it and are urging. So it's not a matter of you know, Catholics versus Jews, I don't think. Uh, and other, the Roman Catholic Church and some other countries like Germany most recently uh, have produced statements uh, assuming responsibility and asking forgiveness, but uh, neither the Vatican nor the Italian church has done that. Yeah, so interestingly, you, you know, the sources used, like you said, a big bulk of those sources are were from these newly opened archives. So they allowed you in. I mean, what's what's the where what are these sources? Even though this book came out, like I said, negative portrayal of hope, they did allow you in. What's the uh, background on that in those archives? Right. So um, I'm often asked why, after some of my previous books, which haven't all been uh, well received in certain Vatican circles, <clears throat> you know, why they let you in anymore. I mean, I, I have to compliment the Vatican on this, that they have taken the position that any bona fide scholars, I mean, they don't allow journalists in or others, uh, but if you're a bona fide scholar, you have access. And um, so, you know, I think they're to be, to be complimented on that. That said, um, you know, they're, the Vatican, just as they're different among Catholics generally, they're even in the Vatican, they're very different uh, perspectives. So. Uh, I'll talk to some archivists, the Vatican archives, who are very sympathetic to uh, to work I'm doing, and we talk about you know, the uh, documents and um, see them in very similar ways. Uh, on the other hand, there are others in the Vatican, obviously, who um, are very protective of this uh, heroic, courageous image of uh, Pope Pius XII, and are really lash out at anyone who seems to be uh, tarnishing that. Why does he have a heroic image for them? Like you said, the right wing of the church, he has a heroic Why is that? Well, I think, well, there are a couple of things. One is, um, I mean, it's not just the Vatican that has a hard time coming in terms of World War II. I mean, as someone who spent years living in Italy, I mean, the Italians, 
if you live in Italy, you get the impression <coughs> Uh, the Italians think that they were on the side of the Allies in World War II, not on Hitler's side in World War II. And I think I mentioned in the book somewhere that um, Italy has like dozens of centers for the study of the resistance to fascism, but essentially virtually no center for the study of fascism, which after all uh, ruled Italy for over 20 years. Uh, and the resistance was a matter of you know, some months in some limited parts of the country with some limited number of people. So it's not just the Vatican, which was heavily Italian at the time, come, having difficulty coming to terms with World War II, but um, Italy as well, and of course elsewhere in Europe. But um, yeah, I do see it as, so aside from you know, wanting to uh, protect the reputation of the church more generally, there is this internal battle in the church where, I mean, if you go on Twitter, for example, which I do uh, fairly often, and you know, put in Pius XII, you'll see many uh, postings will, which will identify him as the last pope. In fact, they'll say there hasn't been a legitimate pope, that Francis isn't really pope. <laughs> um, and such is the antagonism toward the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. Um, so th this book kind of, um, when, when did you begin this book? And did you begin this? Did you know they were going to open the sources? Was that begun before? Were you, is it only based on those sources? Yeah, so one thing we should probably mention is that the book, uh, although it is really the first major book, I think, that takes advantage of access to these newly opened Vatican archives, but it's based on tens of thousands of documents in other archives that you can't really do this history just by looking at Vatican archives. It would be very limited kind of history and limited view. Uh, for one thing, you realize that a variety of other important countries like Italy, Germany, France, U.S., Britain, they all had emissaries, ambassadors or other envoys to the Vatican who were in the Vatican every day during World War II, sending reports back to their governments about their discussions either with the Pope or the people right around the Pope. And so I had, I kind of made a bet that when Francis became Pope, uh, as part of his, um, you know, announced effort at greater transparency and opening uh, that he would kind of bow to the pressure that's been on the Vatican for now decades um, to open the archives for World War II. And so um, having done this earlier book on his predecessor, uh, Pius XI, in the 20s and 30s, I began working in the Italian archives, the fascist archives, the uh, German, the Nazi archives, the American, French, British archives. So I already had tens of thousands of pages of documents digitized from those archives when uh, they opened the Vatican Archives. That was, for me, was kind of the last piece in the puzzle. Yeah, and I mentioned this a couple of times. You kind of do tell this broad story. I don't know how broad we went in, in this episode, but there's, there's just 600 pages here. I mean, it's, there's a large cast of characters, many that we haven't even mentioned, where you kind of, it wasn't just, you know, you know it's mainly about the Pope. It's not only about him. Um, I mean, what would, what would be from these archives, being that you said it's the first major book to use these archives, these sources, what would be the kind of, what was the kind of the biggest you know, revelation, I guess. What was the big, most interesting discovery that to you? Well, let me mention two. One, I won't mention it in detail because we already discussed it. And that is the discovery about the uh, secret negotiations that Hitler enters into with the Pope very shortly after he uh, ascends the papacy. I mean, this is kind of amazing, particularly that there were these basically transcripts of their discussions. Uh, but just to mention one other, I'll give another example. Um, so October 16th, the Thousand Jews are rounded up, sent to their death from Rome. Uh, now, in uh, about six weeks later, the end of November, the Mussolini's puppet government announces its new policy, 
that new order that all Jews in Italy should be arrested and sent to concentration camps, all their property seized. Uh, in the wake of this, two weeks later, uh, one of the Pope's main uh, emissaries dealing with uh, Jewish questions, a, a Jesuit, uh, prepares a memo for him, which only comes fully to light with the opening of these archives, which I discovered, uh, in which he basically uh, argues that the Pope needs to do more to, to speak out in some way. Now, he wasn't even advocating that he speak publicly, but simply that he essentially deliver orally, have orally delivered a long um, impassioned plea to the German ambassador of the Holy See uh, to stop the roundup of the Jews of Italy. The Pope or the Secretary of his State uh, sends this to the man that uh, <clears throat> he regarded as his expert on Jewish affairs uh, for reasons I, I still have not been able to figure since what this person knew about Jews or Jewish affairs, uh, I haven't seen any indication of. He would later become Cardinal Vicar of Rome, so rise to a very uh, prominent place in the church. So this uh, prelate, and we, I found this in the newly opened archives that had never been uh, seen before, uh, writes a long memo advising the Pope not to take that advice. And the memo is filled with anti-Semitic slurs. Uh, and so, you know, this, this kind of thing really adds uh, much more depth. I mean, we basically know what the Pope did publicly, of course, they didn't say anything. Uh, but what was going on behind the scenes, we really didn't know till the opening of these archives. And so documents like that have really helped me, and hopefully in this book for readers, to fill in that picture. So finally, now that you went through all these archives and you did all these other research and you wrote this book, I mean, what is your impression of Pius XII? Well, you know, he wasn't Hitler's pope. Uh, John Cornwell wrote a kind of bestseller book that was published about 20 years ago by that title. And I think he probably himself saw it as a kind of provocation. Um, but uh, the pope was certainly not courageous. I mean, so if his defenders simply would say, uh, look, he was in a very difficult situation. It looked like Germany was going to win the war. He had to worry. Uh, he was responsible for the church. Uh, he had to worry about survival. Um, he certainly wasn't happy about what was happening to the Jews, but, you know, that wasn't his job as he saw it. Yeah, so, I, you know, I can come up with a, an argument. It certainly wouldn't be an argument to make him a saint, but it'd be an argument to explain his behavior and not make him a devil. Um, but they don't do that. Instead, they say he was this heroic, courageous figure. He saved hundreds of thousands of Jewish lives. They quote rabbis. They love to quote rabbis who said uh, how great he was and so on. Uh, and that's why I think you just need to set the historic record straight. Um, not least because it raises questions about religious responsibility. I mean, we see this in the U.S. too. I won't get into U.S. politics, but... Uh, religious leaders who back certain political leaders um, and who e even when those political leaders, it's clear, have not a religious bone in their body. Um, so, I mean, I think this is a history that still today uh, has some lessons to teach. Yeah, and it's a really, uh, you know, read the, went through the book, it's a really fascinating story and uh, very readable as well. So I'll put a link in the show's notes to that book. And just finally, are you, so are you done with Italy? You have another book on Italy working in anything now? Yeah, so I'm working on various projects, but um, a couple of them relate to, you know, what we're talking about. Uh, one, I'll just mention one, is the, uh, the Vatican 
possibly in part in relation <laughs> to response to my book and defense, um, announced in July that they were making available online uh, all the archival records from their so-called Jews file. Uh, and these are about 30 or 40,000 pages of documents of uh, what they refer to as Jews who've appealed during, uh, during and just before World War II uh, to the Pope or to the Vatican for help as they're being persecuted. Uh, and I mean, these are files that were among those made available two years ago, but now instead of you know, sit, having to sit in the archives and, and uh, reading them, uh, you can just download these, which I've done. And so I'm making my way through reading them all. The uh, uh, great majority of them are baptized Jews. Uh, but they're interesting. For one thing, I mean, they're very sad to read and knowing what's going to happen to a lot of these people. Uh, but they give a kind of first person story of the Holocaust really as it's going on. And see, because they write these long pleas explaining what they're going through. So I'm working my way through that at the moment. Yeah, I think some of those are in the book, right? You do mention such uh, pleas and letters that some of them wrote. Jews yeah, wrote. Right. Um, but there's it's just very rich material. All right. So, uh, you know, obviously, like I, like I said, it's uh, enjoyable in air quotes, obviously, like any World War II book, it's a, you know, sad and un very, you know, terrible story. But, uh, you know, I'll put a link in the show's notes. Anyone would like to purchase the book. And uh, thank you, Professor Christopher, for joining me. Well, thank you.